one, appealing versus rebelling, part one. I'm going to do something a little different this morning. I'm going to share after I, or I'm going to pray after I share a few thoughts so that I can pray according to those thoughts. Over the last few weeks, I've had many interactions with people in the church, and most of those interactions have been wonderful. I want to share about three of them. A few weeks ago, a couple in the church reached out to me with some questions regarding the way that the leadership was handling um, closing down the church, potentially reopening it, and they wanted to have a Zoom call and understand what the leadership was thinking and where we're coming from, and I appreciated their attitudes. They wanted to understand. They asked questions and listened. Second interaction took place this past week. A man reached out to me. He was disagreeing with something that I said on Wednesday night, and I appreciated this communication as well. He expressed his respect and appreciation for the leadership. He took the time to put many of his thoughts in in writing because we weren't able to meet with him yet, and he wanted us to take these into consideration. I was thankful for that communication because um, it allowed me to clarify something from Wednesday night, which I'd like to do now. So on Wednesday night, I shared that there were three principles that had been governing the leadership through this season. And the first principle, I said, was submission to government. And this gentleman said, how could you say your first principle is submission to government versus submission to God? And I thought, I'm really thankful that this person brought this to my attention in case there'd be anyone else that might have thought the same thing when I share that. So I do want to clarify, the question that we as elders have been wrestling with is simply this. If I was to boil it down, it would be this question, what does God want us to do? So in that sense, there's really only one principle for us that's governing us, and that's submission to God. When I said that we had three principles, what I meant was there were three principles that were helping us determine God's will or helping us determine what it looks like to submit to God during this season. I didn't mean that submitting to government is our main principle. The only reason we even care about submitting to government is because we see God commanding it in Scripture. The third interaction that I wanted to share with you took place this past Friday. There was a couple that had disagreed with something that I said in the sermon, appreciated their communication as well. They reached out to me. They asked if they could drive down to the church and talk, and they sat down with Pastor Nathan and I, shared their hearts with us. Now, one thing that I appreciated about all the people in in these situations is they came to me, as far as I can tell, or as far as I know at least, they didn't go to anyone else. And so, really, on behalf of the elders, for anyone, even though I just mentioned these three examples, we appreciate or want to thank anyone or everyone who's handling situations this way. And I want to tell you why I'm sharing about these interactions with people. Primarily because you might disagree with parts of this sermon. And if you do, I want to invite you to please handle that the way that the people I just mentioned handled those interactions with us. They came to us. They, they came with any questions or disagreements or thoughts. And the reason that this is so important is because we're already separated at this time through the social distancing. But I can guarantee this. That is not enough for Satan. That is not enough separation for the devil. He wants greater separation. He wants to take advantage of the current situation. He wants to turn us against each other. He wants to divide us. He wants to destroy our unity. He would want people whispering or gossiping. He would want people um, causing division or disunity in the church. And so what we need to do is we need to fight, not with each other, but against these sorts of things happening. Fight for our unity here. The third thing I want to share is that over the last few weeks, I've watched many webinars. I've been part of many Zoom conference calls with pastors over the last few weeks. And all the pastors are saying the same things. They're experiencing the same challenges in their churches. They share that their people are voicing the same struggles and the same concerns that we're hearing as your elders. And they, or I could say we as pastors, are all asking the same question, the same question many of you are asking as well, which is how long do we keep obeying the government's restriction on assembling? Or in other words, when do we reopen our churches? Or in other words, at what point do we disobey the government? So you can imagine how much I was looking forward to a webinar that was taking place this past Friday evening. It was called, When Do We Disobey the Government? Considering the Biblical and Constitutional Questions. 
The webinar discussed various perspectives at which point churches should disobey the government. Uh, the webinar it was hosted by Scott Brown, some of the or the panelists. I can tell you their names: Gavin Beers, Jason Dome, Sam Waldron, Kevin Swanson, John Snyder. Some of you know John Snyder is the man who published "Behold Your God." I know the Cash family at least watched that. Maybe others of you have seen it too. Now, in last Sunday's sermon, I said something very close to this. The good news is if you want to find information that agrees with you, you can. The bad news is if people want to find information that disagrees with you, they can too, referring to the amount of information and opinions that's out there. And this webinar was a good example of that, because wherever you fall regarding reopening churches or churches remaining closed, you could have listened to that webinar and found at least one person who would agree with your perspective. And my suspicion is people that listened to the webinar said there were some really good points made referring to the individuals that agreed with them. And then they might say there were some really bad points that were made referring to the people that disagreed with their view. And I know this is exactly what, what I thought when I was listening. I'd notice, I'd say, well, that's a really good point there. Generally, it seemed to be someone that was agreeing with, with my perspective. Later in the sermon, <clears throat> I'll tell you with these different perspectives out there, why I've fallen where I have on the side of the issue. Much of the reason that godly people disagree with each other is this. This is a completely new situation for us to be experiencing. In our lifetimes, we've never gone through something like this before. We're all figuring this out as we go. I mean, you know, <laughs> other churches in the future, should they experience something like this, we'll be able to look back and talk about what we've, what we've went through and how we handled it, but we can't do that because we're the first ones to be going through this. And so I want to ask you, do you know what that means then? It means we need to be charitable with each other because we're all figuring this out as we go. We as elders, we must be charitable toward the wonderful congregation that God has given us, many of whom we know are struggling, confused, have questions, wondering what's happening, wondering what's not happening, wondering why certain things are happening, why certain things are not happening. And at the same time, we, as, el- as your elders, we're asking you to please be charitable with us. Because if I share my heart with you, we are doing our best. We are doing our best to lead this congregation through this difficult season. We are praying. Today we're fasting. We are communicating frequently. We are going to God's word. We're trying to make the decisions that we believe most please the Lord and most agree with Scripture. So even if you don't agree with some of the decisions we make, I would just invite you to consider that that's our hearts. Hebrews 13, 17, it says that you, the congregation, should let us, the elders, lead with joy and not groaning. And I, don't, I definitely don't mean that as a rebuke. I actually mean it as an encouragement because on behalf of the elders, I want to say I want to thank all of you who do this and make it a joy for us to be in this position. When Pastor Nason was candidating, I told him, I said, if you become the pastor here, you're going to find a wonderful family that loves the Lord and that loves each other. And if you come here with your family, they're going to love you too. Now, going back to that webinar, it wasn't as convincing. I mean, when I finished, I basically heard two completely different and conflicting sides. I I was kind of hoping that I was going to tune into this webinar and be able to walk away and feel absolutely convinced because of the great agreement uh, among the individuals or because of something that I hadn't already considered that was going to be so profound. And so the webinar wasn't very convincing, but here's what I have become convinced of. I'm convinced that we are at a very pivotal moment in our nation a very pivotal moment in our state, and a very pivotal moment in our church. And I believe God wants me to preach on submission, what it is and what it isn't, what it looks like to submit, what it looks like to rebel, when we should submit and when we shouldn't submit. And I don't think that I should rush this. Please believe me when I say that I'm very, very picky with my sermons down to the very word as I'm polishing and refining, even removing just single words, watching the the number count as Katie and I go over the sermon, 
uh, as I go over it different times, every time I feel like it's, it's improving and I'm removing words and adding words. And the point is this, if I thought something was not important or I thought it was unnecessary, then I would remove it. And so the reason that I share that is I don't think I can go quickly through this. We need to take our time because if I'm not clear now or I'm not thorough now, then I could be confusing. And then that would be worse than not preaching on this topic at all. So consider this. None of us have it all figured out. That right there is another reason that we should be charitable. None of us have perfect theology, which is another reason we should be charitable with each other. We would like to think that we're unbiased. We like to think that we're impartial. We like to think that we're fair-minded. The truth is none of us are, at least not completely. All of us, myself included, we came to the service today with some number of assumptions, some number of suppositions, some number of prejudices. And my request for you is we continue this sermon, but then also the sermon next week or the other sermon on submission. My request is for you to be open to what God wants to say to you through his word. And then my second request is this. If God's word conflicts with any of your assumptions or suppositions or prejudices, then you have a responsibility to reject those and embrace and hold to what God's word says. And now I'd like to pray so that we can also pray along those lines. So join me in praying. Father, we come before you knowing that we are flawed individuals in our understanding and our thinking. Sin has affected every part of us. None of us perfectly divide your word. None of us can see it as, as clearly and accurately as we desire, and unfortunately, we probably think that we understand and see more clearly than we actually do. And so I don't come to you this morning praying that anyone would embrace my opinion or my agenda or thoughts or any of the elders. My prayer, Lord, is that people would embrace your word and what it says about this topic that I know has people on multiple sides. And I don't mean multiple sides in our church. I mean multiple sides across the nation and even across the world. This isn't just the Woodland Christian Church that's considering when to disobey the government. That's really the question in every single church, church's mind. Every Christian is wondering this, Lord. So speak to us through your word. Give us clarity. Direct us. Help us to hold to the truths of Scripture, not our opinions, not our agendas. And if there's things that we need to reject or we need to turn from, perhaps even areas where we need to repent, then I pray that by your grace we would do so. And so just open our minds or give us clean slates to receive the truth from Scripture. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now I'm going to start off with the bad news. The bad news is this. If you're an American, you're probably going to have more trouble with submission than most people in the rest of the world. And that's because submission does not just seem un-American, it seems downright anti-American. And why is that? It's because we value freedom and liberty more than we value almost anything else. And what does submission look like? It looks like a loss of freedom. It looks like a loss of liberty. Give me liberty or give me death— That was the quote from Patrick Henry that he made to the Virginia Convention in 1775, and that's the quote that's credited with convincing the convention to commit troops in the Revolutionary War. Now, give me liberty or give me death is very close to what? I would rather die than submit. Give me liberty or give me death is very close to I would rather die than submit. Now, when a nation you could say prides itself, or you could even say is built on a quote like this, we're going to have a hard time with submission. Now, as Christians, because we are, we are Christians before we are anything else, our citizenship is in heaven. We don't come to Scripture as Americans. We come to Scripture as Christians. So this is not what our nation is or isn't, how it was or wasn't built, or what anyone before us has ever thought. This is about what God's word says to us. And if you have a problem with submission, then you have two big problems. 
First, submission is spoken of very frequently in the Bible. And so if you have a problem with submission, you're going to have a problem with much of the Bible. Second, not only is submission spoken of very frequently in Scripture, it's spoken of very positively in Scripture. And so I would say this, if you struggle with submission, you're going to struggle following Christ. Or if you have a problem being a submissive person, you're going to have a problem being a Christian. Now, there are some passages on submission that we're going to look at this morning and the next Sunday, dealing primarily with submission to government. Before we do, I want to deal with at least one of the questions that I suspect is going to be nagging you while we look at these verses so that they can be removed from your mind so that you can read these passages without those lingering questions. And this brings us to lesson one. Lesson one on your handouts. We don't submit part one to sin. We don't submit part one to sin. Hopefully, if we get this out of the way, then you'll be able to hear God through his word when we read the verses. Now, currently, we, the elders, do not think that the government is telling us to submit to sin. If we believed that we were being told to submit to sin, we would disobey. If we reach the point that we believe we are being told to sin, then at that point we will disobey. Let me cover the two most commonly quoted passages. I probably heard these two passages mentioned more times in the last few weeks, whether in conversations, Zoom calls, webinars, and the whole rest of my Christian life combined. The first passage is in Daniel 6, and here's the context. Daniel was in Babylon, and you know the story. Many of the high officials despised him. They were jealous of him. They wanted to see him killed. They could bring no accusation against him, and so they knew that if there was one way that they were going to be able to catch him doing something wrong, it would be in his life with the Lord or his religious life or spiritual life. So they went to the king and they said, Daniel 6, 6, O King Darius, live forever. You should establish an ordinance that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Therefore, King Darius signed the ordinance. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed forbidding anyone from praying to anyone except the king, Daniel went to his house, he got down on his knees three times a day, and he prayed, and he gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Now, this is wonderful, isn't it? Daniel is told not to pray, but he declares, but he, he didn't really declare that he's going to pray. He just went and prayed anyway, and he did it right before his window, even if people were going to see him do it. And so, I'll be the first to say it is a wonderful account. But this is what I want to ask you. Have we been told not to pray? No, we have not been told not to pray. If we were told not to pray, we would disobey. Now, it's interesting that Daniel is so frequently pulled up as an example of disobedience to authority. Because Daniel was in Babylon at this time. He was one of the exiles who had been sent there. What had God said so clearly to the Jews who were going into Babylon? In short, submit. Submit to the authority that's over you submit to the government. I'm just going to choose one of many places that I could read to you making this point. God told the Jews going into Babylon, Jeremiah 27, 8, if anyone will not serve Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and put their neck under his yoke or will not submit, I mean, that's some strong language for submission, isn't it? Put your neck under the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar. If they won't do that, God says, I'll punish them with a sword, famine, and pestilence until I've consumed them by his hand. Any nation that will bring its neck or will submit under the yoke of the king of Babylon and serve him will live. To Zedekiah, king of Judah, I spoke, bring your necks under the yoke of the king of Babylon and serve him and his people and live. Three times in just a few verses, God said very clearly through his prophet to put your necks under the yoke of the king of Babylon. So if anything, Daniel's time in Babylon for people who have a little bit of elevation to look at the big picture and not just pull that 
account out in isolation must recognize that Daniel, as well as his friends and the other Jews in Babylon, demonstrate the extraordinary lengths that God expects his people to go to submit to authority. The second most well-known passage is Acts 5. The context is the apostles were brought before the authorities they were told not to preach, Acts 5.29. But Peter and the apostles, they answered, and they said, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And again, this is also wonderful, isn't it? I'll be the first one to say that. The authorities tell them not to preach. They declare they're going to preach, and then they actually preach to the authorities that told them not to preach, right? I mean, that was a pretty good gospel presentation that Peter and the apostles gave to those people that just told them to stop preaching the gospel. Let me ask you this. Have we been asked not to preach the gospel? No, that has not been asked of us. We can preach the gospel. We have been. We have been preaching the gospel more than we ever have before, at least in the 10 years that I have been at Woodland Christian Church. If the government tells us not to preach the gospel, then we will disobey. Look at 1 Peter 2 with me, if you're not there already. Hebrews, James, and Peter. I want to explain this section of Scripture. 1 Peter 2, 13 to 1 Peter 3, 6 is a wonderful section of Scripture dealing entirely with submission. And so here's a little outline for it. 1 Peter 2, 13 to 17 is about citizens submitting to government. 1 Peter 2, 18 to 20 is about employees submitting to employers. 1 Peter 2, 21 to 25 is about Christ's example of submission that we're supposed to follow. 1 Peter 3, 1 to 6 is about wives submitting to their husbands. Look with me at verse 13. It says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. You know, I want to say something. I didn't put this on my notes. This has been bothering me since I've been preaching. I'm just going to say it. I believe that the people that want us to disobey the government in our church or that want us to open this church, I just want you to see me say this to you. I believe that you are wonderful Christians, and I believe that you have submissive spirits. You should not take this sermon as any sort of commentary necessarily on my view of you as a Christian. Many of the people who have reached out to us and and strongly urged us to reopen the church, I would be the first one to say on behalf of the elders that we see you as wonderful Christians, wonderful brothers and sisters in Christ, people that we are thankful for. So please don't take this sermon or anything that I teach to imply anything otherwise, but please hear God speak to you through his word. The context of these verses is important. The Jews and the Christians, they were suffering at the hands of the Romans. Notice what Peter didn't do. He didn't tell them to disobey. He didn't tell them to pick up weapons and organize an army and go march on Rome and fight back and try to overthrow them. Instead, he told them to submit. One of the reasons that the Jews were so angry with Jesus is this is the example that they saw from him. I mean, Peter uses Jesus as the premier example of what he's saying here. So if you want to follow Christ, you do what these verses say. If you want to follow Christ, you submit. You don't disobey. You don't rebel. Now, one question people might have is, well, what levels of government do we submit to? Do we only submit to the highest levels, like perhaps the president? Maybe we're not bound to submit to the governor or the mayor. Look at the verse. Peter said, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it's the emperor as supreme or whether it's the governor as is sent by him. 
In other words, whether it's President Trump, whether it's Governor Inslee, whether it's Mayor Finn, or whether you walk into a store and they have guidelines for that store, if they are the store owners and they have authority of you over you when you enter and you submit if you go into someone's home, then you submit to the authority of that man who owns the home when you enter his home or you step on his property. We submit to the authority that's over us regardless of the level, down to the lowest levels that we find over us. That's Peter's point. Now hear me when I say this. We rightly consider Peter and the apostles' example in Acts 5. It is recorded for us in the pages of Scripture. Here's what I don't hear people often considering. That the same Peter who disobeyed in Acts 5 then wrote these verses. Some of the strongest verses in all of Scripture regarding submitting to government or submitting to authority. I see people loving to cling to Acts 5. I don't see now why is that. In their defense, because they want to be back together and worship as a church. And I love that, to be candid with you. I love that. We were talking as the elders, and I said to the elders, I said, let's consider what we're seeing or hearing. People that want to get to church, people that want to worship, people that want to see their brothers and sisters in Christ. How could we as elders not love that? So we love that. We're thankful that that's your heart. We would be discouraged if your heart wasn't to meet. We would be discouraged if your heart was to keep the church doors closed or to sit at home instead of being here corporately as God's word commands. But what I notice is people are not giving the weight to 1 Peter 2 that they should verses written by the same guy that they love to cite in Acts 5. Now, as a pastor, I don't have the liberty to pick and choose with Scripture. I can't treat it like a buffet. But guess what? If you're a Christian, the same applies to you. There might be higher accountability. Let me clarify that. There is higher accountability for me. Let not many of you become teachers. But if you're a follower of Christ, you don't get to pick and choose with his word either. You don't get to find the verses that you like and cling to them and disregard the verses you don't like. Or you don't get to cling to those verses that agree with your position or agenda or supposition and then deny or reject those verses that conflict with what you think or what you want to believe. We all have to take the whole counsel of God's word into consideration. Now here's what you might be saying. Peter and the apostles, they were told not to preach, but they preached. Daniel was told not to pray, but he prayed. We're told not to assemble, so why don't we disobey and assemble? And I think that is a very good and a very reasonable question. And this is the simple answer. Daniel and the apostles were being singled out, and they were experiencing religious persecution, and that is not the case for us. We are not being singled out. We are not experiencing religious persecution. Daniel was told not to pray to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob so they could kill him, but other people could still pray to the king. In the apostles' day, they were told not to preach Christ. People could preach plenty of other religions. That's religious persecution. That is being singled out. But for us, we're not being told not to pray, worship, or preach the gospel. We aren't being singled out. I will be the first to say there are some inconsistencies regarding who is and isn't closed, regarding who is viewed as essential versus non-essential. But churches are far from the only institutions or organizations being affected by this. Other businesses, other organizations, other institutions are receiving the same restrictions as us. Now, to be clear again, if we are singled out, then we will disobey. We are not experiencing religious persecution. The stated motivation of federal, state, and local governments for the quarantine and for the distancing is the protection of the general public. If If we experience religious persecution, then we will disobey. But we are not at this point. 
And for any of the people that do, I won't be surprised if someone in some persecuted country raises their hand and takes offense as some Americans saying that. Me personally, if I was one of those persecuted Christians and I had to listen to some Americans talk about being persecuted, that would be very offensive to me. I don't think we know what persecution is. Maybe we will experience it. If we do, we will disobey. We are not there yet. So let me say it like this. Maybe we will be in Acts 5. Maybe we will be in Daniel 6, which demonstrate disobeying authority, but we're not there yet. Right now, we're in Romans 13. Right now, we're in 1 Peter 2. Right now, we're in Titus 3, which commands submitting to authority. And keep this in mind. Like we shared Wednesday night, we're submitting to authority, but we are not being passive. We're submitting to authority, but we are not rolling over. We've asked you to pray and fast. And I'll, and I'll just say this. If you have been furious about what the government's doing, and we asked you to fast and pray today, I sure hope you're fasting and praying. Because it's very easy to act really upset about things. It's a lot, e- it's a lot harder to do the spiritual disciplines that God wants. Anyone can post angry stuff on Facebook. Who can't do that? Who can't complain? Who can't criticize? Who can't slander? But find me the people that want to fast and pray. Those are the people who want to see real change and not just voice their opinions and thoughts. I take people who never post anything on Facebook, who fast and pray just one day. We've asked you to pray and fast so that the governor opens the church. If churches don't reopen, we will probably ask you to fast and pray again. We are appealing. We have written letters, multiple letters that all the elders have signed to the governor, to other political leaders, other politicians, asking them to reopen. We've contacted all the pastors in our area, and we've asked them, I hate to say follow our example, but to do the same thing. Some of them already have. In our appeal, we're asking for alternative ways to meet. We're asking to reopen. We're asking for alternative ways of meeting. We're asking for multiple services with lower numbers. We're asking for drive-in services in our parking lot. We're asking for meetings in big fields. According to Governor Inslee's Friday announcement, the first phase of the reopening plan would, quote, allow drive-in church services with one household per vehicle. The elders and I, we're getting together again tonight to consider all the new information. And I'm coming to you again, asking for your prayer for us, for wisdom for us. Let me make one more point before we move on from these verses. Earlier I said that I listened to the webinar and there are godly men on all sides, totally disagreeing with each other. And while they disagree with each other, they quote other godly men. So it's like godly men going out in both directions. And there's like piles of godly men saying completely contradictory things or coming to completely different conclusions. I said that I have found myself on a certain side. I'm not criticizing or condemning anyone who comes to a different conclusion as me, but as your pastor, I think you're at least obligated to know why I'm falling on the side that I'm on. Because I, I have, you don't have to do this, because I can tell you what you can do. You don't have to go out there and find some number of people that would disagree with me. I know you can find that. I've heard them myself. I could tell you people that disagree with me. I could quote them. I've sat in webinars and listened to them. But as your pastor, I think you're obligated to know why I see things the way that I do. In this, we will come back to lesson one, but this brings us to lesson two. Build theology with imperatives supported by narratives. Lesson two, build theology with imperatives supported by narratives. And if I, if, I, if I want that lesson to be a little longer, I'd say, and not the other way around. Build theology with imperatives supported by narratives, and I would say, and don't do it the other way around. I want to equip you for the work of the ministry. I mean, that's my primary responsibility as your pastor. And sometimes you notice I try to give you uh, what you might consider like a tool to put in your toolbox for rightly dividing God's word. Your ministry flows from your theology, so it's very important for you to build correct theology. Let me say that one more time. 
your ministry flows from, or our ministry flows from our theology, so it's very important for us to have correct theology. So I would just encourage you to keep this lesson in mind for any time that you're wrestling with things. If you remember a few weeks ago, I told you what commands are, or excuse me, I told you what imperatives are. Imperatives are commands, such as forgive as you've been forgiven, do all things without complaining, pray without ceasing. 1 Peter 2.13, which we just read, is an imperative. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor supreme or to governors. That's an imperative or that's a command. Narratives are accounts, accounts we might love, such as Moses in the burning bush, David fighting Goliath, Jesus raising Lazarus, you know, Paul being lowered in a basket outside the wall, Gideon fighting the Midianites. Daniel 6, disobeying and praying, is a narrative. Acts 5, the apostles being told not to preach and saying we will disobey and preach anyway, is a narrative. Build your theology with imperatives and support that theology with narratives, but not the other way around. If you ever see tension between imperatives and narratives, which I would say we're seeing plenty of right now between Romans 13, Titus 3, 1 Peter 2, and then Acts 5 and Daniel 6, plenty of tension there. Give greater weight to imperatives. Give greater weight to commands. Give less weight to narratives. In other words, if you have to choose between narratives such as Daniel 6 and Acts 5, or Daniel 6, Acts 5, which demonstrate disobeying authority, and then imperatives such as 1 Peter 2, Romans 13, Titus 3, which commands submitting to authority, you follow the imperatives. And this is why I fall where I fall. I disagree with people encouraging disobedience to authority at this point because first, they typically argue with narratives. I've been listening to this for weeks, and they build their cases almost entirely with narratives. Like I said, I've heard more about Acts 5 and Daniel 6 than the whole rest of my Christian life combined. And second, they minimize, or sometimes, I hate to say this, but it's true, even manipulate imperatives. They minimize Deny, it seems, almost, the crystal clear teaching of 1 Peter 2, Romans 13, and Titus 2. These verses are not at all ambiguous or hard to understand. You don't need a seminary degree. You do not. Now, I understand there are some doctrines where a seminary degree can be very beneficial, and there are some verses where it is very helpful to have someone help you understand them. That's not the case with these verses. For the person, I'm convinced, who wants to look at them honestly, they can understand easily what they're commanding. We've read these with my children. My youngest children can understand what these verses are saying. One final point. Someone might very legitimately argue, well, Hebrews 10.25 says not to neglect meeting together as is the habit of some. So isn't that an an imperative? This is what I would say. You're not neglecting meeting together because we're not meeting together. You can't assemble. You can't assemble when there is no assembly. I'm going to talk about this more next week, but it's worth mentioning now. If we should be gathering, but we're not, that's not on your shoulders. Whose shoulders is that on? That's on my shoulders, and that's on the shoulders of the other three elders. We're choosing to submit. If we're wrong, then that fault is with us. And I mention this because if any of you have a conscience that is, has been struck by us not meeting, you need to allow that responsibility to rest on our shoulders because we are the leaders of this church and we are the ones who have made this decision for the time being. Let us bear that burden and hopefully you can be unburdened. You're not forsaking gathering together because we are not gathering right now. Look at verse 18, 1 Peter 2. Servants or employees be subject to your masters and employers with all, due, with all respect, 
not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. This is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. These verses are about employees submitting to employers. I want to share a story from my life before I became a Christian that was significant to me and illustrates why I think we should be good witnesses to unbelievers around us. And it comes from when I was in the workplace. I was an elementary school teacher, not a Christian yet, and I attended this staff meeting. And the principal said, the district needs to save money. And so we're telling you, or I'm telling you, or they want us not to set our our air conditioners lower than 78 degrees. And the principal sort of communicated this in a way that communicated, I need to pass this along to you, but I'm not going to be walking into your classrooms to check your air conditioners. And so I just went back to my classroom and I put my air conditioner back at 68 degrees or 38 degrees, whatever it was. And then a few weeks later, I walked into this woman's classroom and it was like an oven in there. And I said, why don't you turn the air conditioning down? And she said, we were told to leave it at 78. And it kind of shocked me because I thought it had been communicated with enough looseness. I didn't even feel bound to try to hide it from the principal. And I tell you this because I knew she was a Christian. I knew her dad was a pastor. I came to know her pastor because it was her church that I was invited to, and that's by Elwin, and that's where I ended up becoming a Christian. Now, I'm not saying I got saved because this woman submitted to authority, but I will say this. Her submission impacted me. Like we talked about on Wednesday night, we want to maintain a good witness among unbelievers. We do not want to be viewed as rebellious. And her submission was a good witness to me. I'm not saying I heard or saw the gospel through her actions, but I would definitely say that I saw Christ through her, through her submission. Now, some of you might have seen this. When we got our live streaming set up for the church, I went to the Woodland, one of the Woodland Facebook groups, and I shared the link for our our webcasting, our live streaming there. And I said, if your church isn't meeting, or you don't have, or I mean, if you don't have a church, or your church doesn't offer live streaming services, we'd love to have you join us. And when I said join us, what I meant was join us online. Apparently, some number of people read that, and they thought that I meant join us down at the church. Nobody said, oh, that's so brave of you oh, I can't believe that you guys are still meeting, or oh, what a demonstration of your faith, or, or we're seeing your good deeds, and then we're glorifying your Father in heaven. Instead, some of the people that thought I was inviting people to come join us down here at the church and meet or gather, even though we had been told to quarantine or self-distance, they said, and some of you saw these comments, you're being so selfish, you are so inconsiderate, you better stop this. Who do you think you are? And then interestingly, a couple other people that I don't even know, you could say came to my defense or at least explained that I wasn't inviting everyone to come down here to the church. And so the point is this. I'm not concerned with my reputation, but we should all be concerned with Christ's reputation. And if we disobey, we're making Christ look bad to many, including probably some of the people who have received the over 2,000 baggies that we have sent out. Now, after Peter calls us to submit to authority, he talks about Christ's example of submission. Look at verse 21. He says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. So Peter's simple point is because Christ has suffered so much, we're expected to submit even if it means suffering. Verse 22, he committed no sin. He describes his, Peter describes Christ's submission here. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Notice all the verses are about what he didn't do. He didn't sin, he didn't deceive, he didn't revile, he didn't threaten. That is the language of submission. 
That's what submission is. It's, it's not doing what you might want to do. And these must be some of the most challenging verses in Scripture because we're being told here to show the same submission to authority that Jesus showed. That's the point. This is inserted into these verses about submission because Peter is telling us, or God is telling us through Peter, that Christ is the example of submission to authority. I mean, that's why Peter brings us to Christ's trials when he is before religious leaders or Pilate and discusses his behavior there and how submissive Jesus looked, not when, not, you know, a year or months earlier when he was out in the community healing or, or teaching. Why does Peter take us right to that moment when he's before Pilate or before the religious leaders and he doesn't do these things? Because it's a demonstration of Peter's, of, of Christ's submission to the authority at that time and how he responded to it how he suffered, how he did it silently, not reviling, not threatening in return. And this brings us to the next part of lesson one. We don't submit part two, kicking and screaming. So back to lesson one, we don't submit part two, kicking and screaming. We don't submit kicking and screaming. Since we're called to submit, there's application for all of us in this. Even if you were to say, well, I'm not having any problems submitting to the government at this time. We're called to submit in enough other areas that there's that. Nobody's, our lives should be lives of submission. So this should challenge or encourage all of us. The way we submit, whether it's congregations to elders, whether it's citizens to the government, whether it's employees to employers, children to parents, wives to husbands, the way we submit is as important as submitting. The way we submit is as important as submitting. If you're a parent, you know exactly what I mean by this. There have been plenty of things that you have asked your children to do, and they did it, but they did it with a bad attitude. You asked them to shut the door, and they slammed it, or you asked them to sit down, and they sat down with an eye roll or a moan and a groan. And so the way we submit is as important as submitting itself. And the reason is that we tend to think, because really when people respond poorly or they submit poorly, I'm using the word submit loosely because I would say it's not even really submitting, it's an outward demonstration of what's going on in the heart. We think of submission as an outward action because it plays itself out outwardly, but submission takes place where? In the heart. It is an inward issue. Submission or rebellion begins in the heart inwardly and plays itself out outwardly. Now, during this season, what does it look like for us to submit to authority without kicking and screaming? Let's zoom in now. Let's let's, um, focus in on what it means for us to submit during this season without kicking and screaming. I want to answer this by sharing something. A pastor friend of mine, I don't mind giving him credit for this. His name is Monty Seamal. He shared during a webinar with the rest of the pastors that he had encouraged his congregation to do a social media audit. He asked them to consider what their social media conveys. He says, does your social media convey that you hate authority? Or does your social media convey that you love Christ? Now, let me just ask you, and please try to answer this honestly. When you see Christians, and they're complaining about authority, they're criticizing authority, they're slandering our president, they're slandering our governor, they're slandering slandering others in positions of authority, does that look like the Christ in 1 Peter 2? Does that look like Jesus as he's described in 1 Peter 2? Or I could say, does that look like Jesus any place in the Gospels? We can even move outside the Gospels. Does that look like any of the godly people in the Bible? How do the godly people look? What was David like with Saul? 
Let me remind you of something the pastor Nathan shared on Wednesday night. In Hebrews 10.25, it says, not to neglect meeting together. And understandably, this verse has received considerable attention during this season. Unfortunately, the previous verse has not been receiving the same amount of attention, which says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. I'm very glad, I'm sure the rest of you are very glad that we can communicate with each other during the season. I mean, as your elders, as, one, as your pastor and one of your elders, I would encourage you to be communicating with each other during this season through the different options that God has graciously afforded us, whether it's calling, whether it's texting, whether it's emailing, whether it's Facebook messaging, whether it's Zooming. But I want to make one request with your communication ask yourself this. Is this text, or is this email, or is this phone call, or is this Facebook post stirring people up to love and good works, or does it simply reveal that I'm kicking and screaming? There is way too much kicking and screaming going on on social media, and I'm telling you, it doesn't look like Christ. It doesn't look like what we're commanded and it doesn't look like the great heroes of the faith throughout the Old Testament. I mean, if you want some narratives to support the imperatives, think of what the great men of Scripture look like. They wouldn't be on social media doing that. Keep this in mind. If you're using texts, emails, and social media to stir up one another to love and good works, then you are using them morally. You are using them. I'm in the category of these things being amoral. Phone calls, text messages, emails, are social media, amoral. The way we use them, though, absolutely moral. They are non-spiritual or amoral. The way we use them, absolutely spiritual and moral or immoral. If you're using text, email, social media to attack, criticize, divide, slander, kick and scream, you're using them immorally and unrighteously. Matthew 12, 36, Jesus said, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Now imagine, Jesus said, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they text or email or post. Please put your communication through that filter. It can help all of us. Look at 1 Peter 3.1. Peter says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. The wives can relax. I'm not going to preach on <laughs> submission to husbands, but I do want you to notice something. Peter commands wives to submit to husbands even if what? Even if they do not obey the word or even if they're ungodly. And this isn't the first time we've seen this. Look back one chapter, 1 Peter 2, verse 18. Peter says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust or the corrupt or the ungodly. So we're not expected to submit to sin. But Peter tells employees that they're expected to submit to ungodly employers. And Peter tells wives that they're expected to submit to ungodly husbands. And this brings us to lesson three. We do submit to ungodly people. We do submit to ungodly people. This answers one of the most common and legitimate questions people ask about submission. Some, if sometimes people, they want to argue that we shouldn't submit to the government and, or the authority over us, and then they tell me how ungodly or how, how evil even the person or the authority is. I'm not going to deny it. I can agree with you. I can acknowledge, I mean, to be candid, there are things the authority over us does that I hate. I hate the murder 
of babies. I hate the way that marriage is becoming a joke. God's other main institution just being so despised. I despise that. But if you want to sit there and say, we shouldn't submit because these people are so ungodly, I would say that is not what the Bible says. If you want to tell me how ungodly they are, I will agree with you. But the Bible still tells us to submit to ungodly people. It is a theme in Peter's passage here about submission. And if you want a narrative that supports this imperative, just consider one we've already considered. When God sent the Jews into Babylon, did he say, Nebuchadnezzar is an ungodly man. Do not submit to him. You go there and you do your best to rebel and disobey. No, he said, you go there and you submit. The point is, we can't make this argument. We cannot say we should not be submitting to President Trump or Governor Inslee because he isn't a Christian or because he's ungodly. Now, I want to close by giving you one encouragement. Look in 1 Peter 2, verse 13. 1 Peter 2, verse 13. Peter says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme. And notice the words, for the Lord's sake. God appeals to us to submit for him. He wants us to submit to authority because he wants us to submit to him. We are not submitting for the people we're submitting to. We are not submitting for President Trump. We are not submitting for Governor Inslee. We aren't submitting for Mayor Finn. And I'll say this, you're not submitting for your elders. I would ask you, don't do it for us because you're not doing it for us. You're doing it for the Lord's sake. And I'll tell you why this is so important. So many times when we're called to submit, we don't want to submit because of the people we're expected to submit to. We don't want to submit to our employer. We don't want to submit to our president or a governor or a mayor. Many times children are upset with their parents and they don't want to submit to their parents. I have said probably more times than I can count in marriage conferences that wives are going to be upset with their husbands and they don't want to submit to their husbands. And at that moment, they have to remember they're not submitting to their husband for their husband. They're submitting to their husband for the Lord. And I don't have any illusions about this, that sometimes or maybe many times, congregations don't want to submit to their elders. In those times, just remember, you are not doing it for those people. You are doing it for the Lord. And this is my encouragement to you as your pastor. I am not asking you to do anything for me or any of the other elders. We don't deserve it, but Christ deserves it. He deserves your submission. He died for you. Do this for him. Father, we thank you for what Christ has done for us. We want to submit to him. And I know that we are wondering what that looks like during this season. And so I pray this, Lord. I pray if I have shared anything that is untrue, if I have shared anything that is wrong, disagreeable to you or disagreeable to your word, I pray that it will be completely disregarded from the hearts of every person listening right now. But if I have rightly divided your word and if I have shared the truth from it, I pray that it will bear witness, that it will convict, that it will challenge, and that people will recognize that even if I was preaching, that they were hearing from you and this is what you want to say to them. Because if I am communicating what your word says, it's as though you are saying it to them. And so I pray, Lord, that they would receive it from you. Thank you for this time, Lord. Thank you for your word. I thank you for the people in this church. We thank you for the wonderful congregation. I say that on behalf of the elders that you have blessed us with. We thank you for these people that love Christ, that love each other, 
and love to worship. We want to be back together, Lord. We want the church to reopen. We want to hear each other's voices singing praise and glory to your Son. We think about these letters going out, reaching these individuals, and we pray, as Proverbs 21.1 says, that you would turn their hearts according to your will. We know that's something you can do, Lord. Give us elders' wisdom as we navigate through this season. Be with us tonight as we meet. Direct us, Lord. We want to do your will, and we pray these things in your Son's name. Amen.